Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. No matter who you are, things in your life probably aren't going as expected, whatever that means. But the things you are doing right now, no matter what they are, that's your life. It's not a plan B. I'm your host, Madeline Mortensen, and you're listening to This Is Not A Backup Plan. Hello, friends. Happy December. I hope you had a really lovely Thanksgiving. My family and I went out to my grandparents' house, and in addition to dinner, which was really nice, on the Friday after Thanksgiving, my sister and I drove out to Dinosaur National Monument, which is out almost in Colorado. It's in eastern Utah. It's just outside of Vernal, and we saw the Quarry Wall, which is a really cool visitor center that's built around the face of a dinosaur bone quarry wall, so you can see like the fossils, where they were found in the wall. They have a very cute visitor center. Vernal has a very, very, very nice dinosaur museum that I did not know about. And then we stayed in the park until after dark, which wasn't that late because it's Utah and because it's winter, and we saw the stars. It's a dark sky park, so the stars are really good. The Milky Way was beautiful. So many constellations. We had a really fun time. I love winter in the desert. I love like the way the clear blue sky looks against like kind of the golden dried like grasses. And I love the snow on red rock. And I love how sharp the evergreen looks when the other colors kind of go away. So it was a really nice day and I had a lot of fun. This last weekend, I went to Boise to see my maternal grandmother and to bring her a Christmas gift, which I was really proud of. Years and years and years ago, she took a painting class and painted this oil painting of a spot in her neighborhood. It was really pretty. I always loved it growing up. And a few years ago, I realized I hadn't seen it for a while, and I found out she donated it to the library. So I was able to track it down, and I got it. And I've had it for a few years, but this year, I had it digitized. A friend took some really nice art photography of it, and then I made cards. And so I brought my grandma these cards that I had made, and I gave them to her. And it was really fun, because she was looking at them, and she was like, oh, did you paint this? And I was like... No, but someone you know did. And it took her a minute, but she realized that it was this painting that she had done and she was so touched. It turned out that she regretted giving it away to the library. So she was so excited to find out that I had obtained it. So I think that will be one of my favorite gifts I've given recently. It was so fun to be sneaky and to be a detective and to surprise her like that. This week's episode is one of my favorite interviews I've done. Uh, is with Miss Maddie Jean. You might know her as that on Twitter or on social media. Madeline Thatcher, though, is a creative and a writer, and she's based in Salt Lake. And she and I talked about her poetry, and we talked about incorporating creativity and writing into your life. 
I think this episode wins the award for the most Taylor Swift references in one of my podcasts. We talked a lot about Evermore, which is perfect because it is officially Evermore season. So I hope you are cozy and ready for just a very nice, thoughtful conversation about writing and creativity and what that can add to your life. Hello, Maddie. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been really excited to chat with you. Will you just introduce yourself before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Madeline or Miss Maddie Jean, if you follow me anywhere on the internet. I am 27 years old. I currently live in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was raised in Arizona, although I was born in Utah. I still claim Arizona is my hometown, though, so definitely a desert rat. Yeah, I am a writer and an avid reader, and I'm just really excited to be here and chatting with you. (laughs) Yay. So what brought you to Utah then? I graduated high school when I was 16 years old and was trying to decide where I wanted to go to school. And uh, even though I am an avid University of Utah fan, my whole family has been four four generations strong. I felt like I was supposed to go to BYU. I was incredibly upset about it. But I turned 17 and like two months later showed up in Provo and I never left. My parents ended up moving back to the state when I was finishing my undergrad. And so when all my family was back together, I was like, well, there's really no point in going home. So I guess I'm staying here. Oh, that's very understandable. I can imagine, yes, I would have been very upset in a similar situation of really like BYU instead of the U. I grew up in a BYU family. So if I had felt like I should go to the U, I would have been really upset. But now I work at the U. So things just come around. All the tables have turned. Like it is, it's very funny. There's this family legend. I think it's true. I don't remember it, but I'm going to take my mom's word that one of the first things my dad taught me and my siblings how to say when he was like, oh, here, my kids can talk. I'm going to show it off. He'd look at us and say, BYU what? And we'd all plug our noses and BYU stinks. It was just like a thing that we did. It was like our party trick. (laughs) And he was very like pleased that I went to BYU because it was a lot cheaper than anywhere else I was thinking about going. But even then, I still wore red on game day. So hopefully I did him proud. (laughs) And then I went to the U for my master's. So I think I actively played both fields. Yeah, it all comes around. It all comes right, around. Right, yeah. So you said avid reader, writer, and writing is what we're going to talk about today. You write really lovely poetry that you share some of on the internet, which I feel really lucky that you do. So can you just start by telling me, have you always written poetry? Or like, when did that start to be something that you used as a way to see the world and express how you felt? That is a great question. I have always been a writer. I've always seen the world that way. It's been the easiest way, I think, for me to understand how it works. I remember, and I think for most, if not all writers, it all started with reading. Uh, I have a vivid memory of when my mom taught me how to read. Like all of me and my siblings, we learned with Fun with Dick and Jane primers from like the 1950s. My mom was a school teacher and had saved like all the things that she had used in her own classrooms. And so when it came time for us to learn, that's what she used. And I remember my dad coming home from work the day that I had like finally been able to turn the pages and read the words that were on there without any help and understand that the symbols on the page like made made sense in context of larger than just like what they looked like. My dad came in and I remember running up to him and said, dad, dad, I can read, I can read. And it's it's been that way ever since. I like never really lost that <laughs> excitement of what it means to read. And from that came writing. I <laughs> would often stay late like 
into my recess time at school when we were doing creative writing assignments because I wanted more time. But poetry wasn't necessarily something that I really gravitated towards until I took a class, actually at BYU, surprisingly. It was for a creative writing minor. You had to take a course from each of the genres of fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction. And so I took my poetry class, and I was a little apprehensive because the first day of the class, there was about 15 of us in the workshop, and the professor was like, I generally only hand out about two A's out of the whole semester. And I was like... I'm going to do it. I'm going to get one of them. It was a actually a really enjoyable experience, but it was really hard because I often didn't think very much about form. I tended just to put words on a page the way that I felt them. But And I think that works for a lot of poetry, and it's something that I've gone back to in my most recent writings. But that class in particular really taught me like the craft of poetry. So we tried really formulaic. I wrote like a sonnet for the first time. I wrote a sestina for the first time. And it was a practice that had me really focus on the craft itself, which is not something that I had done previously. I'll be honest that writing has always been something that's come really naturally to me. And so to think about it critically wasn't something that I ever thought I needed to do. But that professor in particular really emphasized that was so important that it would make me a better writer if I could think more critically about the way that I was crafting my stories. I put down the poetry for a little bit. I went to grad school. I did some creative nonfiction there. And then in 2020, this is, you know, six months into the COVID-19 pandemic, there is a group of Mormon artist collectives on Twitter that posted something that they call October or Archtober. I'm not quite sure like how it's pronounced is the funny thing about being on the internet is like no one ever says it out loud. And it was a set of 31 prompts for all the days of October. And they were generally geared towards artists and people doing physical mediums in that way. But I saw a couple people had decided to write poetry. And I was like, I haven't written poetry in a while. And it's often hard to figure out what I want to write about. Why don't I just give this a shot? And so I started and then I realized that I had grown not only as a writer, but also as a person in a way that poetry felt different to me, the actual like practice and craft of it. And yeah, it's been two years now of me just like writing poetry and that now being the thing I gravitate towards whenever I want to think about something big or work through any big feelings that I'm having, which I'm going to be quite frank, happens <laughs> quite often. I'm a person that just has a lot of feelings all the time. Yeah, it's, it's pretty embarrassing, but I don't know if the poetry makes it less embarrassing, but it does make it more bearable. <laughs> I really love that origin story. There's so many interesting things. I love that like you've always been a writer, but that poetry is something that maybe has challenged you as a writer in a different way. I think that's really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it has meant to like integrate this medium into your life more so as an adult, something you always loved, but that you're reintegrating in a different way? Yeah, I think... Poetry, at least in my experience, had a tendency to feel like really juvenile. I wrote like some in the eighth grade when, again, I was like, oh, this boy that I like doesn't like me back. And it caused like all this drama. So that was the way I like I handled it. This was also like deep into my teenage emo angst phase. So like naturally, this is what I was supposed to do. But and <laughs> it was something that I was like. I don't know. It felt cliche and I liked that. This is like what I as like a as a moody teenager was supposed to do. I think the challenging part came when I was an adult and was faced with really big feelings and I was like, okay, I'm not a teenager anymore. So I as much as I I'm gonna I'm outing myself here, I absolutely still sing Taylor Swift into a hairbrush. I am definitely still <laughs> sobbing to, to <laughs> like Disney princess soundtracks in the car when I need to feel something. I was like, I need a different way to express how I'm feeling, which I don't think is always given. We don't always get very clear guidelines about how to do that as an adult. 
And this, the poetry thing for me also came at a time where I was, I'd been doing this for a long time, but the way that I was thinking about my faith had really hit kind of an acceleration phase. Ways that I was thinking about not only what I believed, but how my belief system impacted how I thought and acted in the world. And I think it was a challenge in that it was a medium that for a long time had felt like a something that was from an old part of me and something that I was supposed to do because of who I saw myself as that dashboard confessional loving teenager who wore too much eyeliner. And the challenge came when I needed to look at myself and didn't have a blueprint for it. And then it was like, okay, let's see if maybe this old framework can be adjusted to fit who I am now, even though I'm 10 years older. Although I will say I still absolutely listen to Dashboard Confessional on the regular. <laughs> so will you tell me more about how you used poetry to get to know your like new version of yourself as an adult? I'm thinking about like Taylor Swift, who I also love, and I'm thinking about Evermore, and I'm thinking about like I haven't met the new me yet. And I think that's a really relatable thing as growing up and getting older. So tell me about how you've used poetry to meet the new Maddie. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that's the thing that I've realized most with poetry and with other things is that I am never going to be the same person even from day to day. There's this there's this philosopher whose name is Adam Miller. He's written books like Letters to a Young Mormon and Original Grace. And he was on a really excellent podcast called Fireside. I think it's is it Fireside Chats or something like that with I think it's Brian Hodges. And anyway, they were having this conversation about what it meant to live um live in a world that was constantly dying. And he put that in reference to climate change, which I think is something that is fairly obvious just from the way we live, especially living in the desert. But he talked about it also in context of his own son, saying that he had to kind of mourn the death of his son because at the time of that recording, his son was 15. And he was like, my five-year-old son is dead. He's gone. I will never meet him again. We will never have time to spend with one another. And that really hit me because not only was I given a way to think about who I used to be, but it also gave me the foresight to realize that I would have to continue to meet myself over and over again. Poetry has been an interesting medium in that because I often return to a lot of similar themes, but the way I think and write about those themes changes. Most of my poetry, I would say, is faith or religious-based. I also draw a lot of inspiration from constellations, from the cosmos, from ancient mythology, the great big Bible stories. And it's been interesting to watch the way that I've thought and interpreted like really popular archetypes over the course of several years. They've changed. I'm thinking in particular how as a as a teenager, I would often see myself, um, I think like a lot of teenagers, in the heroes of the stories that I was reading. I was raised Mormon and so spent a good portion of my time reading the Book of Mormon and so would see myself in the heroes, in the prophets, in the good guys. But I'm seeing now as an adult, I'm empathizing a lot more with the people that were often cast as the villains. And that's where I'm like spending more time in my writing and my thoughts. So again, it's like drawing from same from the same, so to speak, from the same source of inspiration, from the same stories and legends that I grew up with. But who I see myself as and the themes that I'm exploring have shifted. And poetry has given me, honestly, like a really great chronological timeline, so to speak, to see how that changes. I can compare how I was writing about a certain topic in 2020 versus how I'm writing about it now, which is honestly a little, it's a little vulnerable to see yourself so naked, even if, even though it's me, even though I wrote that. But I also think that's, that's the really tender part about choosing and working with a medium that is so deeply rooted in the personal, is that while my old past selves have died and I haven't yet met the new me yet, I have records of who they used to be, even if they're only relics from a time that I'll never be able to visit again. So on a practical note with that, 
Something that's really wonderful about writing is it creates a record. Mm-hmm. Thing that can be really vulnerable and painful about writing is that it creates a record. Sometimes that can get in your own head as a writer. Like if I write these things down, I'll have to reckon with the fact that they exist when I'm an older and a different person. And I think sometimes that can create like a sense of writer block or just a sense of like writer's anxiety. How do you reckon with that? How do you reckon with the fact that you're going to write things that you feel differently about, that you might feel embarrassed by? And how do you allow yourself that space to to be and to exist and to know you'll feel differently later? That is such a good question. And one that I have been wrestling with for a really long time. So growing up, Mormon, the Young Women's Program, was obviously a big part of my teenage years. And a lot of the way that program is structured for the girls who do it involves a lot of journal writing. Most of the tasks that they assign you to do in order to earn your like equivalent of merit badges, so to speak, was to write in your journal. And I often was so overwhelmed with the prospect of writing this down, knowing that I was supposed to be leaving a record for my children and my grandchildren, that I... First of all, it couldn't do it. But even when I did, I felt like I couldn't be honest because the thought of being that vulnerable with other people. And a lot of it was like not even like, oh, I'm just worried that they won't think I was as good or as faithful. But more also along the lines, I was like, man, I like don't want them to know how many like crushes I had and how I was feeling about this boy. Like that's so embarrassing. Heaven <laughs> forbid anybody know I have feelings. And then I over the past couple of years, have been sorting through a lot of the like physical memories of my grandparents, all of whom have passed away. My grandmother in particular, my grandma Jean, who, is, who I'm named after, was someone I was really close to. And she died when I was 12, which is a long time ago. She's been gone longer than I knew her. And it's interesting because I think about her all the time. To actually take it back to Evermore, Taylor Swift, Marjorie is like one of my all-time favorite songs. I can't listen to it without crying. But she has this line talking about these closet filled full of backlog dreams and you left them all to me. My grandmother, I think, had a life that she loved and there were also lots of things that she didn't get to do. But the way that I heard about this was not from herself necessarily, but from my mom and my aunt people who could only guess about what she wanted just knowing who she was, as limited as that is from like a daughter to a mother. And I think it was that thought that I have this feeling that my grandmother wanted to travel more than she did and she didn't get to. And she wanted to to spend money on beautiful clothes, but didn't feel like she necessarily could. My grandfather, who was also a great man, was also just very frugal. They were very poor. And she gave up a lot of the more affluent lifestyle that she had as a single child growing up in a big city. She grew up in Chicago when she married my grandfather and moved to Utah. And so thinking about all those things that she wanted to do and maybe never got to do really inspired me to write actually how I was feeling and not ignore the fact that other people would be reading that but send it almost as a message. I I actually have, for the first time in my life, I've actually been keeping like a fairly steady journal over the past year. And there was one point where I was really going through it. And I legitimately wrote out in all capital letters, like, to all the future generations reading this, know your great-grandmother was having a bad time. (laughs) I'm not even going to pretend that this is going well. Like, I'm going to straight up tell you this is how I'm feeling. And it was so interesting to feel like it was a point of connection rather than like a legacy I was leaving. Um, Because I think oftentimes in the concept of like legacy, it feels like it has to be perfect. It feels like it has to be good. It feels like it has to be something that you can look up to. And rather than having people look up to me, I like the thought of just looking back because I'm a real person. And wrestling with the fact that I'm a real person also forces me to acknowledge that other people are real people, which is very hard when we live in a world that is very easy to get lost in your own mind. And so I think realizing that along with the relationship with my grandmother, realizing that she was so much more of a person that I never got to really know, but wanting to honor the way that I do remember her by giving whoever comes after me something that I wish I had from her is really kind of 
how it landed there. I know that was like very long and convoluted, but. No, I love that. And I love how you've talked about your reimagination, your reckoning with your childhood faith. And I think anyone who is reckoning with a faith, like something that I know I've experienced, is having to ask yourself questions about what you believe about after death. And I think something that, especially if you're a child that grows in some, up into something, I think it's really easy to trust. Yeah, like there's heaven, I'll see people again. And I think for a wide spectrum of people, whether or not they hold on to their childhood faith, whether or not, you have to ask yourself real questions of an adult of what does death mean and what do relationships mm. after this mean? And so this to me seems like a really beautiful way to like forge relationships backwards and forward in the present. And in the present you have, because no matter what you believe, like your belief after this life is just a hope. It's a thought. None of us can be sure. This is a way to to do that in a way that you can control to forge relationships backwards and forward. And that seems really beautiful and really powerful. That's exactly it. I have this memory of that same grandmother's funeral. And again, my, my grandfather was so kind. They loved each other so much. They were married for 50 years. And my grandfather was also one of the most like faithful, God-fearing man, men I've, I've ever had the privilege of knowing. And I remember this man who I had seen my whole childhood who was unafraid to stand up and say, I know he didn't seem to have any doubts or questions about anything that informed the way that he thought this world and the next would work. Stood up the Sunday after he had buried his wife and said, I, I always thought I knew that the resurrection of who we love and being with the people we love after this life is real. But this time I have to hope because knowledge in the face of burying someone you love, literally like she died the day after Easter, which I find very ironic. <laughs> that was, he was faced with this concept that that is a, that belief is something that, the grief is really unknowable except in the lived experience. And I love the way you put that about basically, you know, writing postcards to who you were and who you will be, people from the past, people from the future. I don't know, like you said, what the next life will be or what it will hold, or if there is one. I hope there is. But I do know that in the process, because I often spend a lot of time writing about, as one professor called my called it the networks of women in my life, that they they can somehow see or feel or know that I'm writing about them now. Even though we never got a chance to meet me at 27, my grandmother will never know me as an adult. But I hope that wherever she is, if she is somewhere, and I hope she is, that she can see how I'm writing and what I'm feeling because it's the, I think it's, to me, it seems like the best way to offer like a prayer to people who are, who are gone. It's the best way to like really commune with people who are gone or who haven't arrived yet. The like purpose of this podcast for me is to really like claim space for single women in a world and especially in a faith and a state culture that, that does not allow single women space. And I know from some things you've written that you are also a single woman in your late 20s mm -hmm. and that what we're doing is, I've framed it a lot of ways, but it's just the most boringly radical thing. Like it's not, like it is radical, but it shouldn't be. Like it's boringly yeah. radical is how I really see it. And I believe as you're talking about the network of women, whether or not you're single, but I think especially if you are single, especially if you're experiencing these things, like this is an opportunity to claim their stories in a way that the world may not have allowed them to claim them. And I think whether or not you see yourselves as a writer, if this is a way you want to tell a story, if poetry is a way you want to connect, like what a beautiful thing to honor the women who are literally in your family tree and the women who figuratively have, um, who were been trying for generations to create this space for women to exist in. Yeah, I love that. I, I, 
Oh, I'm sorry. This is like so emotional to be talking about all of this. But I just have such a profound respect for the women who came before me, even though their lives look different from maybe what I wanted. And maybe I'm guessing in a lot of ways what they wanted for themselves, because I think that's how life goes for all of us. But especially knowing who they were and the society that they, you know, were raised in, which has, of course, historically not been very kind to women and it's getting better. But personally, I think not in a pace that's quite fast enough. But yeah, it is... I think it is a great way to honor that space and to I think it's also been a little radical to use use my writing use my poetry as an opportunity to to think about who all of these women were outside of the roles and relationships I had with them. I was talking to my mom about this a couple of months ago and just realizing like I I've never known her outside of her being my mother. And she had a whole life before she had me. She had me the day after her 30th birthday. I was like she lived for a long time before I came along. And she got married when she was almost 27, so lived a, a good portion of her life without my father. And although she is so happy that we're all part of that life now and she wouldn't change anything, like, it, it also doesn't alter the fact that she she exists as a person outside of wife and mother, which is a way that I will never know her. That being said, though, I don't think that exercise is, is fruitless. I think it's still worth trying to understand who these people are outside of the way that, whether it be biological or cultural ties, how they're bound to us, what they would exist like outside of those relationships. Not that relationships can't give you meaning, but to see my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother as women outside of just people in a lineage, people on familysearch.org and actual real people living real experiences with real feelings and real lives. I don't know, that, that, that does seem pretty radical to me, especially growing up in a community that often enforced that the only way to be valued and treated and respected as a woman was in my relationship to other people. I myself, as a individual person was not going to be enough. I needed to be valued in relation to a husband or children, even when I didn't have them yet. Yes. It's interesting. My mom got married when she was 26 and had me the year she turned 29. So very similar mm -hmm. in some ways and funny, very different from the predominant culture in yes. which I grew up. And she actually passed away when I was 16. And so a lot of my oh, adult years has been trying to think about who who would she be now imagining and giving her space to grow as a person. And I love talking about writing this way because I think so many people could see like poetry and hear that you like poetry and they think of the final posts that you share. They don't understand that it's a tool for reckoning with your present, with your past, with your future. And this is a kind of writing that anyone can engage in, even if they don't consider themselves a writer if this interests you like you can engage with this even if you don't feel like you're going to have a final product you want to share like this process of reckoning can bring value into your life absolutely there is this really great book called the artist way by julia cameron and it's been in print for close to 25 years and her whole purpose is basically inspiring people to live creative lives oftentimes that's for maybe people who like me actually want to produce something final and artistic work but the other big part of her her whole shtick really is teaching anybody who's interested in bringing creativity into their life ways to do it and she talks about it as a way of understanding the world i think you're right in that oftentimes i think with any artist we don't usually see the drafts the poetry that i post is in in many ways a draft because i am i'm working on altering it to hopefully put it into a full-fledged collection and i'm assuming it'll look a little different than it was when it was like initially posted to twitter but you're right in that people don't see what those conversations look like inside my brain as I was thinking about it and writing about it or what particular memory or feeling sparked this kind of like rabbit hole journey. My writing experience has always been, I have to imagine that other people have also had this experience, but I 
I often will get the last line of whatever I'm writing, be it an essay or a poem, and know that I finish there, but I'm not quite sure how to get there. So the journey for me is like writing my way to the end, even though I know that's where it's going to be. And it doesn't happen every single time, but I will say more often than not, that's usually how my work goes. And so I think that's been an interesting thing is like starting at the end and like almost working backwards, (laughs) which I don't know, I think is an interesting way, at least for me, for processing my emotions to say, hey, this is how I feel. Now I'm going to do the work to figure out why and how I got here. So you mentioned the book The Artist's Way. What would you say to people who maybe are interested in integrating a writing practice? What are things you've considered? What are things that you feel like add to your writing practice? What would be like the advice or the personal experience that you would share for someone who wanted to, who was considering that for themselves? I'm sure the FBI agent who's keeping tabs on me is like, wow, this girl is a huge hypocrite for what you're about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. So Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way, she has a couple of writing practices, but there's one that's like really first and foremost and one that she advocates before all else. This is what you do. She calls them the morning pages. And the the practice is really simple. It is three pages, longhand, stream of consciousness before you start any sort of creative practice. That's what you do. It doesn't matter what you write about. And the intention really should be is you don't look at this. You don't share it with anybody else. She even at one point suggests writing them on like loose leaf sheets of paper and then slipping it into a manila envelope and sealing it shut. Don't look at this. But her whole goal is to get all of the kind of bits and pieces that are floating around your brain outside on a piece of paper to really quiet the mind to then be able to open it up to to the creative flow that happens. Julia Cameron is also a big advocate for the act of just practicing and just doing the thing. I think oftentimes a lot of creatives, I know I myself fall into this category, I often wait to feel inspired before I get started. And our whole thing is that inspiration is work, not like a feeling. And so you just get started and it's it's that act. So absolutely the morning pages. I am not perfect, but that is like the journaling practice that is really carried me through this past year. So that I think would be my biggest suggestion. The artist way just in general is really great. And one more thing that's like part of this practice that I think is really cool. She talks about honoring God as the ultimate creator. And she acknowledges that not everybody will believe in the traditional bearded man in the sky type of God. And so she she phrases God as good orderly direction and that these morning pages are meant to help you steer yourself in the right direction and open yourself up to that inspiration of good orderly direction to make good art. So not even good art, just like make the art. Yeah, that would, that's, it's, it is wild how much of a difference it makes. I'm honestly mad that it like works that well because it's honestly a slog. Like my hand starts hurting, like it can take a while and I don't always do it in one sitting, even though you should, according to Miss Cameron. But yeah, morning pages, three pages longhand, stream of consciousness. Don't worry about it. Don't look back at it. Just get all of the little like cobwebby pieces outside of your brain. And then you can start to work. So it sounds like the drinking water of creativity. Like, you know, like drinking water works. It's like maddening that drinking water works as well as it does, but it does. It does. And you're like, this is entirely unfair. Like, how dare like this (laughs) simple ritualistic practice do anything for me? (laughs) I want to just like have inspiration be with me all the time. But of course, that's like not what happens when you live as a person in the world. (laughs) As we wrap up our conversation, is there anything that's come to mind that you haven't had a chance to share? I think maybe I'll close out with this. So the title of this podcast, obviously, this is not a backup plan, really speaks to me. I was lucky to grow up in a home where education and extracurricular pursuits were always highly encouraged. I never felt less than for being a woman or for having big dreams and big goals. Your home and your parents are not the only people that raise you. And I grew up in a very insular Mormon community that while very beneficial in a lot of ways, also made me feel often like my dreams were going to be 
too big for the roles that I was destined for, mainly being a wife and being a mother. And I think it was because I had people in my life who told me that what I wanted was not a backup plan, that what I wanted was was good and wholesome and worth fighting for, and that all the other good things that I would eventually want to be would find their way to me when it was right, made it so that I had the courage to like actually take that leap. I'm going to be honest, I am single and I am happy with my life, and I also like very much want someone to share it with. And coming to the conclusion that those two things can be true at the same time has been hard. But again, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea that I and what I want am not a backup plan. That because my life is full and fulfilling and good for me, that's why I want to share it with someone. And so, I don't know, to any anybody else who's sitting in the same boat, I see you. And yeah, I don't know, it's the things that you want and the things that you hope for are good and worthy. So anybody out there who's feeling like maybe they're, they don't deserve to dream as big as they are, or don't deserve to dream at all. I just think that's silly. You can do it. <laughs> I love that. I have always loved Little Women. And in 2019, the Greta Gerwig version, which I feel like you've seen, like, oh, I'm yeah. having a hard time imagining you've not seen it based on this conversation, just really spoke to me, Joe's speech to Marmy about loving her freedom, loving being more than the world was telling her she could be and being lonely. And that's something I've thought a lot about is like, I relish in my life. I relish in my alone time. And I hope, I hope that I will have someone to share it with one day. You can have a wonderful life that you love, that you enjoy fully. And there are things we hope for too. Yes, absolutely. This past summer, I think has taught me that more than anything else. Um, so I'm the oldest in my family and my younger brother got married and my younger sister is having a baby. And all of those things are so exciting. Like I love having a new sister-in-law. I love the chance that I'm going to have a nephew in December. And also realizing that, wow, I, not through anybody's like malicious intent, but like I feel a little bit lonely that I'm not like in that same stage. So yeah, holding both those things at the same time is really difficult. It's through these like spiritual and creative practices that I feel like I've been able to work through these feelings without having to like shove them away or ignore them. So acknowledging that it hurts and is happy at the same time is, I think is the only way that you're going to get through any of it. Because why not quote Evermore again, but both of these things can't be true. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I hope Taylor Swift hears this. I know she's very busy with midnights, but she should know yeah. that this is this is really an evermore, an evermore chat. It's really just an evermore moment for us. Yeah. Yes. Before you go, Maddie, will you tell people where to find you on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So I am Miss Maddie Jean. That's M-I-S-M-A-D-I-E, only one D, J-E-A-N, like the pants, but only one on any social media platform. So that's Instagram, Twitter. TikTok. Yeah, I am just out here trying. So I'd love for you to join me. Thank you so much. I've loved this. This has been so enjoyable. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for listening today. And thank you so much, Maddie, for joining me. I had a lot of fun with you. You can find this podcast on Instagram at Not a Backup Plan. You can find me on Twitter at Madeline K. You can support this work on Patreon. In two weeks, I'll do my last episode of the year, and then I'll be back in January. I think I'm going to switch to calling it season two. So we'll be back in January for season two, and there are lots of fun episodes planned, some episodes about making a will or a medical directive, hopefully some episodes about financial planning coming your way. So lots of good things in the new year. In the meantime, please rate and review. That would be the best Christmas gift that I could get. And please share with your friends and tag me on social media. 
have a lovely December and remember this is your life. It's not plan B.